0: welcome to the jay martin show my name is jay martin and my guest today is matthew Pippenberg, partner at matterhorn asset management now this was a fascinating discussion and we went all over the place we talked about the potential to revalue precious metals we talked about the role cbdc's will play in our life we talked about the issues with leadership both politically and financially and the utter lack of transparency and accountability and how that relates to the media industry and the consequences of that. We really covered a lot of ground and this is a fascinating interview. I mean, given Matthew's experience over two decades, you know, he's overseen over $5 billion in investable assets and prior to that worked as a transactional attorney. The wealth of knowledge and experience in this gentleman's brain is really, really fascinating. I think I've used the word fascinating four times in this intro so I know you're going to enjoy this interview as always beneath this piece of content there's a link where you can subscribe to my weekly newsletter I publish every Sunday and I love writing it I'd love to have you join the team now here is Matthew Pippenberg. enjoy All right. Here I am with Matthew Pippenberg. Matthew, thank you so much for making the time to come on the show and, and chat with me today.
1: Oh, it's a pleasure. I love talking about these topics. So it'll be very, very good to talk.
0: Okay. Well, there's a, there's a handful of directions that I want to go today. Um, let's start with a, with a bigger picture question. If you're thinking through how we're going to reflect on the 2020s, put yourself in the mid 2030s. You can go further forward than that if you want to. And you're thinking about how we define the 2020s when we're looking back with the benefit of hindsight. You know, how will we define this decade and what major change will have stayed and what might have stayed the same? Does anything come to mind?
1: Yeah, it's a compelling question. I mean, uh, it's it's really an appalling time. I and mean, when you look back and I think of my grandkids or my kids studying history, my grandkids studying history, how would they define this era? And 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 that's almost with the caveat that they don't cancel history in a sense and that they're blunt and honest and transparent about history because the victors write history, whether they're financial or military, they write history. But hopefully we come to our senses and look back at this time of excess where, uh, you know, where facts were really fungible. Facts is as simple as math. That's hard to be fungible with. But transparent math would be helpful. I think the lack of transparency, objectivity about financial, even political, but basic math, and even history. There's so many cyclical patterns here, not just in markets, but in debt cycles and in politics and in the behavior of debt-driven politicians, debt-driven nations, uh, populations seduced by lofty words that hide really dangerous math, uh, the very uh, profound lack of accountability uh, when the answer is really quite simple often, you know, when you add trillions and trillions of dollars into the system that dilutes the currencies like you would dilute wine if you add water to it. Um, The failure to just be blunt with the public, left or right, Europe or America, uh, Asia too. uh, That will be an interesting time, how we lived under this fantasy, this fantasy, not just modern monetary theory, the idea that you could solve a debt crisis with more debt and pay for that debt with money literally created out of thin air with mouse clicks at the Eccles building or the ECB, etc. the the fact that that fantasy lasted for so long and that rather than be truthful about that and honest about that and then be realistic about the solutions and talk to the public realistically but to come up with scapegoats and distractions as opposed to accountability that would be an interesting time that from the top down from the bottom up you know policymakers, populations and you know and, and financial policies really lost their mind uh, in a sense. And like movements have in the nineteen thirties in Europe or in the 1780s in France or you know throughout the 60s in South America or or the 70s where where people lost their minds and couldn't see the forest through the trees or the trees through the forest because there's just so much distraction, so much splintering of news, so much weaponization of facts, weaponization of the fourth estate, weaponization of currencies, weaponization of information uh identity politics gone mad uh social justice warriors which kind of it's almost like a period of mccarthyism or the salem witch trials where there's this kind of everyone has a moral high ground and there's a mob thinking and no one's thinking with facts they're thinking with emotions and we're very distracted and so long answered your question it's a time of uh it's a time of kind of splintered chaos and lack of accountability and lack of objectivity Too much identity, too much politics, identity politics, partisan politics, really, really bad financial politics, and a a failure of the fourth estate, uh, the the mainstream media, to identify these things objectively with investigative journalism and to allow truly informed debate as opposed to emotional debate. Um, I always say the days of Gore Vidal and William Buckley, totally different views, totally different views, but very informed. Uh, And I was just in Zurich this week, we had a a table in an old restaurant from the 1500s. And we had a a group of fantastic macro thinkers, market thinkers, risk asset thinkers, precious metal thinkers um, from all different views, but very informed. And we didn't all agree, but there was a a really wonderful exchange of ideas. And if we could do that in a restaurant in Zurich, why can't we do that in the open public and in, in the financial media and the political landscape? And I think, I think we've lost sight of, of, of basic common sense in this era. Interesting.
0: Okay. Lost sight of basic common sense. We've lost, uh, our bit, our ability for open civil debate, as you, you kind of hinted at there, yeah. a lot of what you mentioned, you know, manipulation of the data, lack of accountability and leadership, lack of transparency, um, excessive division, you know, and, and division can be a really valuable asset if you're seeking to retain power. Uh, until it isn't right. Until unrest yeah. explodes, and you're yeah. forced to deal with some kind of uh, some kind of massive expression of civil unrest that overwhelms that power. Yeah, is yeah. this is this related to um, increasing creep of centralized authority? Like, as we see, just increased centralization of power throughout so many buckets of our lives, not just the monetary system, but I would say. Um, uh, definitely the media and how messages are communicated and then agreed upon. So is this is this tied directly to the general theme of centralization, which tends to grow and grow and grow until it collapses
1: on itself? Oh, absolutely. And this is something I did in presentations last year in, in the U.S. and in Europe. And, and um, <clears throat> it's a very simple syllogism and sadly historically confirmed. But, you know, throughout history, from John Law in 1720, the French assembly in 1789, uh, fascism in the 1930s in Spain, Italy, and France, 1917, Russia. I mean, there's just ancient Rome, Chairman Mao's China. Throughout history, when a country is stuck in a debt crisis, when their backs against the wall uh, in a debt crisis, this always, without exception, again, you can go far back into ancient history or modern history, uh, a, a debt crisis always leads to a market crisis of some form. It always leads to a currency crisis of some form and a currency crisis always leads to inflation which is very palpable and felt on the main street which leads to social unrest or a social crisis and that social crisis is always followed by some form of extreme centralized political control from the left or the right again extreme left or extreme right the great turning points in history from fascism to Bolshevism, from napoleon to chairman mao dictators in South America, to even US bullying in in its currency, these are all the consequences of of debt-soaked desperate nations and politicians or regime leaders who don't want to take accountability. And that always leads to more centralized control. We see that centralized control in modern forms today. And we could talk about it. We've talked many, many have, I'm sure you have as well in prior guests, but central, central bank digital currency is just a mass form of surveillance and control. It's very Orwellian. But it's a Trojan horse kind of put in as a great efficient payment system. And there's all kinds of the warm and fuzzy from the IMF to the BIS to the Fed, all the good stuff, ignoring all the real dangerous, more darker motives and truths behind that. Or even something as simple as the Department of Justice being weaponized to go after a sitting or an ex-president, whether you agree with him or not, whether it's going after Hunter Biden by the right or going after Trump by the left, this lack of... um, Focus in this this more centralization, but the, the centralization even of our fourth estate again corporate corporate boards controlling messages rather than giving objective truth. This is true whether it's the left or the right media, uh, and so you have powerful billionaires owning newspapers with boards that have a message, media message and an agenda, as opposed to what the fourth estate was designed for was to be a control on power rather than a voice of power. So whether you're talking about central banks and centralized currencies or centralized information or weaponizing what is supposed to be blind justice for partisan justice, left or right, or, uh, or locking down the entire population of the world over a very debatable uh, crisis, again, a real crisis, but a very debatable means of solving that crisis, there's just so many examples of unbelievable control. And what that leads to of course when you're when you're in a, in a, in a mob scenario like that this kind of mccarthyism this this, uh, this sanctimony and left right or center uh it leads to what tony ud did nyu before he died you know it leads to self-censorship people are afraid to speak their minds of offending or being offended and yeah. so it, it, you have to go to alternative platforms some are good, some are bad. To try and sift through the data to get objective answers on things as simple as inflation, deflation, bond markets, stock markets, or politics. So, centralization is always the last, the last vestige of failed economic systems, and failed economic systems always stem from debt crises. And debt crises, uh, whether it was Clinton or Reagan, or you know, left or right, whether it was Obama or Trump, every. Every leader in the US and, of course, in, in, in Canada and Europe and in Asia can stay elected by putting their economy on a credit card and kicking the can until that credit card is due and there's crisis. And then when that crisis comes, rather than take accountability at the at the political level or at the central bank level. They'll blame it on COVID, a war in the East, or maybe global warming. But they'll never blame it on their own excess—the the massive amount of liquidity, the M2 money supply, you know, up 14 trillion, the M3 money supply up 10x since 2008. It's very simple, you know. Inflation or these topics are basically expansion expansion of the money money supply. They're not supply chain issues. They're not OPEC issues. Those are all influential but we have inflation because we have printed more money or mouse click more money at any other time in history. And so again, it's, uh, that, that failure, that fantasy, rather than take accountability for it, they'll lead, it'll lead to more centralization, uh, whether it's the truck drivers in Canada or whether it's central bank, digital currency around the world, we're seeing signs of desperate leaders trying to control the message, centralize the economy, centralize the politics, centralize their control over the uh, the population which the only antidote to is more informed population again doesn't have to agree with everything the left or the right says but as each individual becomes more informed through programs like this or speakers like us or others and many others with different views that's a positive sign you know these alternative platforms are something that didn't exist say in 1936 germany or franco's spain or mussolini's italy you know but what did mussolini define fascism as the perfect marriage of the state and corporations. And that is exactly what we have in the U.S. and in many parts of Europe right now.
0: So if we were to speculate how this may play out, let's focus on the United States as the global superpower um, and the country that maybe you and I are closest tied to, even if neither one of us live there. Yeah. Um, you know, it's a, it's a decade of massive transformation and massive disruption, chaos and volatility, right? We kicked off the decade with a global pandemic, exactly as you said, the response to that should be hotly debated. Uh, But shortly thereafter, the United States and subsequently the world exploded in all sorts of expressions of civil unrest, protests and riots in in capital cities all over the US and the world. Um, Year three, we see a hot war, right? Third year of the decade and a hot war exploded in Europe. The United States is obviously very tied to that outcome and that activity. The decade is just getting started. I think behind door number four is probably something just as chaotic. And and this party is probably just getting started. But at the end of it, does the United States emerge stronger? Because you know, growth, the human experience, within the human experience, growth is one of the most painful things available to us. But it's worth it because we come out of the turbulence stronger than we went in. Now, could this be the case for the United States? Or do you think this is the beginning of the end of the global superpower as we've known it since mid last century. What are your, what are your thoughts on that?
1: The short, it's, it's a super important question. The shorter answer is I don't think the U S will emerge, uh, as the hegemonic power it was post Bretton Woods, post-World War II okay. for a number of reasons. And if we're going to specifically focus on the U S which is an important, not just because we're familiar with it, but because the U S dollar is the world reserve currency. And the U.S. Treasury, Uncle Sam's IOU, is the most important sovereign bond in the world. Right, and, and and they're very connected. As I've said so many times in so many contexts, and this will directly answer your question: the bond market is the thing, you know, okay. and the U.S. Treasury is the thing, and everything that we can discuss uh, is it, it 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 flows back to understanding not the complexity but the very simplicity of the U.S. bond market because. Whether you're talking about the inflation deflation debate, whether you're talking about the most recent banking crisis, whether you're talking about de-dollarization, whether you're talking about the strength, relative, current, future, past, present of the US dollar, whether you're talking about gold prices or gold movements or central bank purchases of gold, or whether you're talking about equity markets or social unrest in politics, it all comes back to bonds because bonds all come back to debt. And so... If you look just as you were talking about in in recent history uh, in the US and in some parts of Europe too, but look at the dysfunction of years and years of living beyond our means and debt in the credit markets that have been artificially sustained by mouse click trillions. When when those credit markets uh, begin to feel stress because they're unnatural and when rates rise in the face of a debt bubble of historical proportions, unprecedented. We saw in 2019 what should have been coffee talk, water cooler discussions. If people understand, again, I, I understand why not everyone understands everything about the bond market, but the repo crisis in 2019 when commercial banks, too big to fail banks didn't trust each other's collateral and the Fed had to become a lender of last resort and the to the tune of trillions, that was a major red flag in the bond market. That was just the first. Then in 2020, during the COVID crisis, we saw a sovereign bond collapse during the stock market crash of March 2020. Then in October of 2022, we saw the guilt crisis when the, in, in England when they tried to raise rates into a debt crisis. And then in March of this year, of course, we saw a banking crisis, the biggest bank bailout in, in, in years. And so all of these things are related to the bond market. And, and it's not even even SVD or Silicon Valley Bank or Cred, you know, Credit Suisse is a different story, but they're all related. But the, the regional banks in the U.S. weren't really a banking crisis. They were a U.S. Treasury crisis because bond prices have been going down as Powell raises rates. And you can understand that Powell's trying to take the, the keg away from the party or you know, the punch bowl, I think is Volcker, or one of the you take away the punch bowl, as Ted Martin said years ago. And try to tame some of this heat and this inflation in the asset markets and stocks and bonds, but to go from zero interest rate policy from zero to fifty or zero to five hundred to go from zero percentage rate to five hundred basis point move in a year was too much, too soon or too fast, too late. But when you raise rates, when you raise rates, bond prices go down. And if bond prices go down, this is just simple math. It's not getting into duration risk or bond spreads or euro dollar futures or you know, yield curves and inversions and contango and all the Wall Street hingo jingo. If, if you raise rates into a debt crisis, your sovereign bonds go down in price. If sovereign bonds go down in price, like any bond, yields go up. Yields are correlated to interest rates. And if interest rates go up, the cost of debt goes up. Okay, it's very simple. If the cost of debt goes up, that makes anything that's debt driven suffer, whether that's markets or whether that's banks. So, when you think about that, the debate as to what's going to happen next isn't a debate, it's a matter of survival because the US has 95 trillion in combined household, corporate, and public or government debt. The globe has over 300 trillion and counting. When you raise rates into that type of a debt crisis, that's obviously going to be painful and create all kinds of cracks in the ice under our feet. And so by doing this, again, ostensibly Powell's trying to take away some of the, the, the punch bowl to these inflated asset markets and to fight inflation. We can talk about that. But when you do that, you put everything that's debt-driven at risk. And if rates go up into a U.S. public debt that's going to hit $34 trillion by the end of the year, that means the interest Uncle Sam has to pay on his debt which is currently $640 billion a year right now just to pay interest. Well, then next year, it's going to be $740 billion. And if the Biden budget goes to $19 trillion by 2030, then the interest on all that debt becomes unsustainable unless you keep yields controlled, unless you keep those bond yields controlled. The only way to control those bond yields, to keep them from going too high, for the cost of debt to get too high, is to have people buying those bonds. If the world stops buying those bonds, someone else has to, and that's always going to be the central bank. And the central bank has no choice but to control those yields because if yields spike, debt becomes unpayable. It simply becomes impossible. It's mathematical. And so it's no longer a matter of debate, in my opinion, whether the Fed will have to pivot or we can talk about a reset. They're going to have to mouse click money to buy their own debt to keep yields and hence interest rates from getting too high. Powell can raise rates, but he's not, he can only raise it so high. We could talk about that. But it's absolutely essential to survival, to avoid default on the US Treasury. This isn't Venezuela, this isn't a third world country, even though our balance sheet is a banana republic. The US Treasury is the most important treasury in the world. It can't, he can't we can't allow those yields to spike too high. So if, if if the rest of the world, which is de-dollarizing and dumping treasuries, isn't buying Uncle Sam's IOUs, who's going to buy it? It's the Fed. And where's that money coming from? GDP? No, because we, the American dream is now made in China. That's a whole other conversation. It's not going to come from manufacturing. It's not coming from tax receipts. It's going to come from mouse click money. I'm sorry. I don't know when. It will be when the recession that we think is going to be softish becomes very painful. And even Powell said, when the recession is official, we were in one last year, but we'll get to one soon. And I'll talk about that. But when we're, we're going to have to print more money. That's inherently inflationary. Even though a market crisis, a stock market fall or a bond market crisis is deflationary, the end result throughout history will be the debasement of the currency, the creation of more liquidity to keep Uncle Sam's IOU from completely failing because we can't afford it. Because it's not just a debate about bonds and stocks. It's It's the... IOU of the United States government, and the United States government is the owner of the world reserve currency. No matter how much the world de dollarizes, the Yuan is not going to be the world reserve currency tomorrow. It's not. Uh, you know, 60% of, of world currencies is the US dollar, and 40% of all debt is dollar denominated. So what, even if the world de dollarizes, the hegemony of the dollar is definitely changing. The dollar as a payment system is definitely getting weaker. But as a world reserve currency, that's not going to change anytime soon. That U.S. Treasury cannot afford high yields. So the only way to avoid high yields is to keep that bond price normalized. The only way to keep that bond price normalized is to have buyers. And the only buyer of last resort is going to be the Fed, which means more mouse click money, which means the debasement of the currency. That's the syllogism I see is absolutely undeniably simple. Failing a great reset or global Chapter Eleven, blamed on Putin, yeah, you know, or COVID debt. But again, many, many smarter folks than me were warning of this death trap, this doom loop in the bond market long before COVID, long before Zelensky and Putin went into this nightmare, long before lightweights like Kamala Harris went to so-called broker peace in the Ukraine. So, um, you know, David Stockman was right about this seven, eight, nine years ago. This is going to end badly. It doesn't mean the end of the uh, the U.S. as a country. It doesn't mean the end of the U.S. dollar as a viable, important currency. It doesn't mean the end of the U.S. Treasury, but it does mean the end, I think, of the hegemony of U.S. dollar. And there's so many parallels. You know, we could go into the petrodollar. We could go into the BRICS alliances. We could go into you know the world reserve currency as a bully throughout Central America and South America over the decades. But again, um. Raising rates too high into a debt crisis has caused a crisis rather than attract uh, foreigners to buy U.S. treasuries. They've been dumping treasuries because they need liquidity. And so Uncle Sam's Fed, this independent central bank, which Thomas Jefferson warned against and Von Mises warned against and Andrew Jackson warned against. I frankly think Woodrow Wilson, who signed the law, warned against, who felt this central bank, this independent beast, has completely distorted our bond market, And, and now it has become it has become the portfolio manager, the active manager of not only the US economy, but the world economy. The problem is they're a bad active manager. They're a bad portfolio manager and they're cornered. And they're going to have to put instant synthetic liquidity back into this market to keep Uncle Sam's 10-year treasury or bond market from tanking. Because if it tanks, the price of debt gets too high and it's game over. So there really is very few options left for this centralized Economy, the centralized world economy, the centralized U.S. economy. It's a long answer, Jay, but it really does come down to the bond market. And all those stressors from banking risk to market risk to asset bubble risk to central bank policies to social unrest all come back to this very boring thing called the U.S. bond market, the U.S. Treasury, the World Reserves IOU.
0: So let me. Let me ask you that. Yeah, there's lots of th- of threads there that I want to pull on. I think you identified like what's the likelihood of a default? It's it's not high, right? The U.S. is likely not going mm-hmm. to default right. on their debt. Um, no, no. What's the likelihood that GDP is going to suddenly surge and and save this scenario? It's it's not high, right? Not high, no, no. not likely no. in the in the size that we would need it to. So the, right. the most likely and probable scenario is that we continue to sort of paper our way forward. And I don't want to say paper our way out of it, because it's not necessarily an escape patch. It's just, we're just kicking the can a bit further down the road. Um, Now, in your mind, what is the eventual outcome of that? Is it just just a rapid acceleration of de-dollarization on the margin where other powerful countries are just saying, look, we know what's going to happen here, continued debasement of the currency, therefore, we need other options to transact in. Plus, U.S. will continue to weaponize their currency in order to hold on to that power while they're debasing their currency. We don't know what that means. It could mean sanctions like we saw in Russia. It could mean worse, but that door has now been opened um, in terms of confiscating U.S. dollar reserves. We know that's an option on the table now, and it's it's always hardest the first time. Second time's easier. Third time's even easier, right? So it's like we can expect more of that, right? Probably. And so that's an incentive to de-dollarize. We're seeing more CBs purchase gold in record amounts, but like so is that it? The margin just becomes greater, and the activity on the margin outside of U.S. dollar until you know we're in some kind of a multipolar currency economy.
1: Yeah, this was something Grant Williams and I, Grant Williams, almost simultaneously said in February of 2022. In many ways, the de-dollarization that was going to come because of those sanctions. Uh, yes, February February of 2022 was as obvious a watershed to us and many others as. Grant said, "As August of 1970 was was when Nixon closed the gold window on the U.S. dollar, it was a pivot, pivotal, pivotal, pivotal turning point in the history of U.S. hegemony in the U.S. dollar, and in the currency regime of the world to a more multipolar, multi-system um, currency reaction." Keep in mind, as we said again in February 2022, this wasn't psychic; it was common sense. If you understand history, you understand cycles, you understand bond markets. China and Russia are many things, but they're not stupid. As I said many times, you don't have to agree with them. But as a culture, they have been looking at the West in general, and the U.S. in particular, with bewilderment at the debt levels that the U.S. has taken on. They've also, like many other countries, especially in developing economies for decades, uh, been looking for an excuse to distrust and de-dollarize. When you seize Putin's reserves, U.S. treasuries, well, anyone, friendly or unfriendly to the U.S., is going to raise their eyebrow at that. Um, Think of China or other countries sitting on trillions of U.S. treasuries. Well, a U.S. treasury right now, adjusted for inflation, is giving you a negative return. Now, that's not a very friendly thing to be sitting on. Trillions of those things don't feel like a good deal. If you go into a Porsche dealer to buy the most important Porsche of your life, and you're going to put 150 grand down for that car, and you show up after wiring the money in, and what you get instead of a Porsche or pick your car is a rusty 1972 pickup truck, you're not going to think that dealer is a good partner anymore. And it's you can only imagine how China or Russia or, or other South American or other rural developing countries, or any of the BRICS nations would want to keep doing business with the treasury that they're forced to you know, transact with, they're forced to collateralize, or a dollar that's getting more expensive when it's not giving them any value. Again, I do not think the wand is going to replace the dollar. I do not think gold or Bitcoin are going to replace the dollar, and we can talk about that. But I think the respect for and trust in the US dollar is irrevocably changed, and that is why you're seeing bilateral agreements um that is why you're seeing saudi arabia talking to iran you never would have thought that who's brokering that deal is china that is why you're seeing china india and russia all these other countries looking for bilateral agreements outside of the us dollar that's why you're seeing saudi arabia considering selling oil outside of the us dollar these are massive changes that we would have not thought about two or three years ago but post putin post ukraine post western policy reaction now the door is open. Again, it doesn't mean the end of the U.S. dollars a world reserve currency, but it absolutely means a new currency relationship, a new currency systems in the world, even a, a new gold exchange in Moscow, a new, a new paradigm shift. And it's slow and then all at once, but it's to your question, will America find its norm again? No, there's no coming back from this. Once you've cheated so openly on a partner, it's going to be hard to trust them again. And, and I think what was supposed to be a moral chess puppy, but was really a form of financial war, what was supposed to be a short-term strategy against Putin, completely backfired. And again, many right. saw this, not not just me or Grant Williams, many saw this. The fact that our government or our neocons, left, right, or our financial policymakers, again, whether you're Matt Goetz or AOC, our congressmen, our senators have a rudimentary, at best, talking point understanding of economics. Currencies and bonds. It's embarrassing. They're very good at trying to stay elected by extending debt ceilings or promising more than they can deliver so they can basically order what they want at the restaurant and give the bill to the next generation. But they have no understanding of the far much more than you know, the nonlinear ripple effects of these short-sighted headline grabbing, absolutely myopic and frankly, stupid policies. Financially, again, whether you're pro or against this war, the financial consequences are appalling. But the sad thing is, because you control the money, you control the message, they'll blame everything on somebody else. It'll always be blamed on something else. And if you can't blame it on a political bad guy, you are blaming on a virus, sure. which I think was exaggerated. But again, that's just an opinion, just an opinion. Yeah. But um, yeah, it will never be... A central banker or a politician coming up in front of the podium and saying, "We really screwed this up by expanding the balance sheet by nine trillion. We really screwed this up by freezing, by weaponizing the world reserve currency." Is that never?
0: Is that like a necessary evil of a democracy? Like, there's no perfect system. Every system has pros and cons, and consolations, right? And is that one that? you know, we want to live in a free democratic society for obvious reasons, that's a great choice relative to the other choices. But given that scenario, we're always in an election cycle, right, and there's right. downsides to that, right? There's, and yeah. you're just walking us through it, right? But I mean, I'm, I'm up in Canada, like it's, virtue signaling has won elections, like that's what we're living in right now. Very short sighted, yeah. zero substance strategy. It's like, it's ridiculous. But is that just a necessary evil? And is there maybe no getting away from that if you want the opportunity to re-elect your leader every four or so
1: years? Well, he's a great, great point. I mean, you know, what is I think it was Churchill said democracy is awful, but it's the best form of government we have. Right. And 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 even Ben Franklin, when we signed the Declaration of Independence, walked out on the street and said, Well, all democracies eventually die, and it's usually by suicide. But the other politician that you could think of is John Kennedy. He's many things morally Bankrupt in some ways and genius in others, you know, depending on your politics or your views on his personal lifestyle. But many things about Kenny, he was brilliantly well-read, well-educated, interesting man. And he wrote a book when he was, you know, with Addison's disease, from whether he was a Chote, Harvard, or in the Senate, he was always sick, he was always reading. And he wrote a book, which of course, his father helped him publish, but it was an intelligent book called Profiles and Courage about these rare exceptional politicians. It happened to be in the U.S. Senate, but these rare histories of politicians who actually ran for office because they had a genuine altruistic vision to help their country, irregardless of whether they were reelected or not. Uh, I think we have seen some incredible exceptional politicians in U.S. and Europe and other places who were more interested in their country than in their power. But unfortunately, they're the exception. So to your point, democracies are almost forms of bribery because now I'm not talking about just lobbying, which to me is antithetical to the very notion of, of, of a democracy. When you have lobbying groups that effectively buy congressmen and senators to stay elected, that's not a fr- that's not representing your constituency by any stretch of the imagination. That's a that's an, that's a whole other topic. And 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 I think three out of uh, three of three or four financial lobbyists, either from banks or tech, for every congressman and woman in the U.S. That is an absolute contradiction in democracy. But even beyond that, the human nature of most of these politicians is get reelected. And you get reelected by making promises that you can't keep or that you can only keep by putting it on a credit card, as I said earlier. But that's incredibly selfish and short-sighted. I think a family like you and your wife or me and mine and my kids or anyone I know rich or poor middle-class to upper-class can sit down and say, this is our budget. This is what we can and can't do. Or honey, I screwed up with that property. I bought in the Virgin islands. That was silly. I lost a lot of money. We can't get this vacation this year. It's my fault. I'm sorry. The things that you and I and everyone listening does every day with their own families, because they're honest and transparent, hopefully to the most part, we don't see that though in politics, because there's such a pathological need to stay in power. And so to your point, yeah, it's human, all too human. Polit- political systems in theory are great, but they're they're run by human beings. And if those human beings are moral and educated, informed and transparent and honest, uh, we have a better system. And it's only as good as the people in it. And this is what Grant Williams and I were talking about in an interview. It's a lack of wisdom. And by wisdom, I mean accountability, transparency, and honesty. And we, we all yeah. struggle with that. We all struggle with that. but you mature to a point, but I think when you're representing a nation, whether you're in the Congress or in the white house, whether you're Trudeau or whether you're in junior Senator, you gotta be honest. And I think sadly they're, they're incapable of it almost pathologically, or they're too ignorant to even know how ignorant they are. That's a great
0: point. Yeah. You know, you make me think about, um, our former prime minister, Stephen Harper, who I've had on the show a couple of times. And, you know, what struck me about his, uh, his time in, in in power was that he navigated the 2008 financial crisis, and he, I I think he was a very fiscally responsible prime minister. We went into that crisis with uh, a balanced budget, healthy balance sheet, um, the healthiest balance sheet of any G8 nation actually, and we came through that crisis with uh, magazines like The Economist forecasting Canada is going to come stronger, come through this stronger yep. than any other G8 nation, and and we did, and he did things like run a stimulus program when it was required, but promised the public it would be temporary. And it was, he ran a deficit and promised the public it would be temporary. And it was, and those seem like really big wins, but consequently that's why he lost the next election because he reduced entitlements, he reduced spending. He practiced austerity, which is what the country needed. And he leveraged our extractive industries very effectively. I mean, Canada is a huge country laden in, in natural resources. And he leveraged that, right, as yeah, our as our yeah. strength. And that is exactly why he lost the next election, because no one's going to yeah. vote for that, right? No one's going to vote for fiscal responsibility when we're right. thinking about tomorrow. Isn't that right. crazy? And I don't know it how you change that or if you can, but,
1: but yeah. Uh, yeah. It's crazy. I mean, David Stockman was the budget secretary for Reagan. He's, you know, again, obviously he's a Republican. Obviously he was a fan of Reagan, but he'll write and admit that Reagan stayed popular by expanding the budget and by expanding the deficits and by getting the central bank to expand its budget its balance sheet as well that was a problem for stockman as much as he admired that administration he was literally on the inside where you look at a politician like dwight eisenhower a west point grad who saved europe from nazism and fascism clearly in favor of military power but what was his last warning be careful when even his military gets too big um and, and even Truman, when he went to war in Korea, he did it by raising taxes, not expanding the debt and the deficit. That was politically unpopular. But these were this was a generation that believed in fiscal responsibility. Fiscal responsibility shouldn't be left or right; it should be up or down. It should be common sense. It shouldn't be partisan. Just like in a family, you can be a liberal family or a conservative family, but no one buys a Ferrari on a busboy salary. That's just common yeah. sense. Yeah, yeah, And so, but we Unless are the debt's cheap that way. enough. Unless the debt's cheap enough, but again, <laughs> yeah, exactly, good point. But even that debt has to be paid at some point, right? And so we've—it is overused phrase, but it's—it's it's true. We've kicked the can, kicked the can, kicked the can. Many companies on the S and P kick the can, kick the can. They do debt rollovers. They use low interest rates to buy their own shares on debt. Those days are over when Powell raises rates. And I've spent a lot of time criticizing Powell, and I could do it for hours. But you have got to give him credit for. At least trying to put some type of chaperone on this low-rate environment, on this inflated asset bubble, the greatest I've ever studied or seen or traded. Um, Of course, years and years of ZERP, zero interest rate policy, low rates created the biggest asset bubble in history. And you have to keep in mind that 90% of that wealth went to the top 10% of the U.S. population. So not yeah. only did it create massive asset bubbles, it created wealth inequality, which creates social unrest. Mm-hmm. And without undue modesty, I am in the top 10%, but it's not even good for the top 10% to have that much wealth inequality because you sure. create unrest and it's, it's, it's appalling. And so again, all of these things are connected. This bacchanalia, this low rate bacchanalia, which allowed companies to buy back their own debt or buy back their own shares with low interest debt. And then by the way, by buying their own shares, they're pushing up the share price. They're, there's less shares available. That means their earnings per share data is tweaked. CEOs are paid by their share price. So it was a very selfish, selfish policy. How could Bernanke not have seen that, or Paulson or Geithner? Of course they did. And for again, and again, it's not partisan, but for Bernanke to get a Nobel Prize for what? Coming up with the idea of mouse click money to, pay for, yeah. to, to solve a debt crisis with more debt? How can you get a Nobel Prize for that in economics? I joke it should be for fiction. That again goes to your original question, what will they say 20 years from now? Why were they propping Bernanke for a Nobel Prize in economics when his solution was openly farcical? And it will be seen that way down the road. Bernanke promised in 2009, 2010 that this was temporary. QE1 was it. This is a temporary solution. We had QE2, three, four, Operation Twist, unlimited QE. Yeah, yeah. Powell said that inflation was transitory. Nixon said going up the gold standard would be temporary. That was 50 years ago, over 50 yeah. years ago. So again, let's hold these things accountable. Let's again, left or right, Republican or Democrat, just hold people accountable to facts. You know, you don't have to have a political evangelical view, to have common sense. All of us can stop with the partisan and just get to common math. We can agree that hopefully two plus two still equals four. And hopefully we understand that when we're running a, a, global, a national debt of 95 trillion, with it's three times our income. Our debt to GDP ratio, our, our, our banks, when they're insured assets, the insured deposits versus the total deposits, these are common sense math decisions to make it very clear. So Henry Ford, um, all the way down. These banks are running on a system that's absolutely uh, insane. Uh, again, from central bank levels to commercial banks, to fractional reserve banking, when we repeal Glass-Steagall and turn in turn depositor banks like Citibank or Goldman Sachs into effectively hedge funds. This was Larry Summers' fingerprints all over this. And, and again, let's hold them accountable. Let's debate this. Let's debate the deregulation of the derivatives market. The derivatives market, is, as Buffett said, is a weapon of mass destruction. But that was a political process that you know, when Larry Summers was the Treasury Secretary allowed to happen. There was a woman out of Stanford named Brooksley Bourne, who was the head of the CFTC at the time, who warned against this deregulation. And he criticized her openly in Congress. And eight years later, the derivative markets imploded in 2008. It imploded. And then it was bailed out again by more Muslim money. Again, this is not left or right. Let's just let's just bring these things out and debate them. I would be I would love to do it in an open way. That doesn't result and devolve into insulting each other's personality or political views. There was a great debate between Douglas Murray and Malcolm, or Malcolm Gladwell, two men I really admire, two writers I admire, uh, Malcolm Gladwell clearly on the left, uh, Douglas Murray from the UK clearly on the right. But I watched that debate devolve into basically Malcolm Gladwell, who I admired, just trying to come up with bromides and cliches to criticize the person, not the argument against him. And it was sad. It wasn't Buckley and Gorby Vidal in its best. But again, that's what's happening today. I think math and markets are easier to debate openly. Um, I I was talking to Brent Johnson. We have different views on the U.S. dollar, but I have tremendous respect for the amount of information, time, energy, and effort he's put into coming up with his theory. And he could be right, but I don't agree with it. I don't agree with it, but again, I respect it. There's no reason to win that debate. Let's share ideas. That's what's missing today.
0: That's, you know, and that's so important. And in, in, in fact, when you engage in a debate and you lose, are you not the winner? Because you come away yeah, right. with a more evolved perspective. Like you learn, exactly. More, right? Exactly. It's, it's advantageous yeah. to get your ass kicked in a debate.
1: Sure. You you it triggers some emotions, right? Yeah, you, you know, like, every, everyone wins. you change your perspective? You have a new thought. Uh, 100%. he could, he could damn well be right. He's got some really good insights. He really does. Yes
0: and in in you know the most likely scenario he's going to be kind of right and kind of wrong as most you know economic yeah, forecasts are right like we're sure nobody
1: yeah, nobody can predict everything we can predict like a weatherman can predict it's going to rain we don't know exactly how much or what time sure. of the day yeah. we look at the clouds coming well it's probably going to rain i think Brent and i and others agree there's a lot of dark clouds coming towards our markets recession is completely inevitable will it be soft painful softish we can all debate that will the dollar go up or down, will there be deflation before inflation, or just deflation only, or just inflation? These are all interesting things, but we all see massive change coming, and it is not, again, this is not gloom and doom, it's not sensational. I promise you, the next 10 years, well, I promise, I really strongly believe that the <laughs> next 10 years, mathematically, are not going to be as enjoyable as the last 10 years. And The more that we debate these things and talk about these things, it allows people to at least prepare, at the very least prepare, and trust their own judgment. By getting good information in front of them. It doesn't have to be my view, Brent's view, Egon von Greyer's view, Jim Rickard's view, your view. Um, it's just, but these are these are people that Rick Rule, they've all put a lot of time and effort into studying these things. And yeah, that's not true of the pundit reading a prompt in front of CNBC or Fox, or left, right, or center in the Senate of the White House, or Trudeau, who clearly is a lightweight JV thinker. He just is left or right. Yeah. He just is, he's J V. Um, uh, you know, it's, that's, that's sad. You know, I think that's sad. The, the, the lack of great leadership, whether it's in the state department negotiating peace in the Ukraine or whether it's in our, in our central bank policies at the fed or at the ECB, bank yeah. of Canada, the bank of England, the bank of Japan, uh, they're all cornered and no one will just admit that, well, we did this to ourselves.
0: No. Oh man. You hit on, okay. There's a couple things I want to pull on there. So I agree with you, you know, near term, say call that 10 years, right? Um, You know, volatility, uncertainty and disruption. And you said it's not going to be as enjoyable as the previous 10. And right away I'm thinking, well, enjoyable for who, you know, and if you're set up appropriately, um, maybe you can leverage some of this volatility or at least weather the storm from a place of more stability and certainty than others. And so the next question is, well, how do you do that? Right. And we can get into like asset allocation and making sure you have some safe havens and all of this. And and I want to talk about that. But before we get there, you know, you mentioned media coverage, right? And uh, right away, you pointed to both Fox News and CNN, opposite sides of that partisan board, both equally fictitious in their commentary on pretty much anything. But that is that is a great first step, you know, in terms of how do you navigate the next ten years of volatility. Well, step one might be, and I don't, I would assume most people that watch my show aren't watching Fox News or CNN, <laughs> but like, you know, you can always. You can, you can always get triggered by daily headlines. And I am too, like I'll scroll through Twitter and see stuff and it'll fire me up and it, it's really irrelevant. But seeking out independent journalism is more important than ever. And this was so polarizing on a recent debate. It wasn't supposed to be a debate, but it became a debate between somebody on MSNBC. And I, I don't know the journalist quotations, journalist name was interviewing Matt Taibbi, right? Yeah. And, and so in this scenario, you have... I feel like one of the most competent journalists in America, one of the most hardworking, probably squaring off with a commentator He's not a journalist. They're a commentator. One is used to spending weeks researching a thesis, crafting an argument, and then supporting it with evidence. The other is used to performing in like six to eight minute bits. Those are very different things. And as a consequence, you know, th- this journalist Taibi kind of got walked all over because he's not... A pro in that forum of shouting over each other until we make our point, right? But it was so like this is what journalism's become, right? Where the journalists don't get the time of day because they can't shout sensationally enough in a fast enough format to get people yeah. excited, right? And it's like yeah. that's backwards. It's very backwards, right? And we need you know. we need more platforms like Substack, journalists yeah. like Taibi, you know, et cetera, et, yeah. et cetera. But is, is that maybe yeah. the most important step? Is just You know, and you mentioned you don't agree with Brent Johnson, but you really value his research and opinion. You may feel more aligned with like a Luke Grohman or a Grant Williams, but like listen to both. Because as you said, there's no absolute truths, like there's no, you know, guaranteed outcome. Um, And so covering both sides of each base is so important.
1: Well, that civility in France, the politesse is the first virtue that before everything else. Then become informed. I, I, you know, even Jim Rickards, he, when he's debating inflation or cryptos, whether he has a view or not, he does, he studies it very carefully before he goes out there in public and talks about it. Yes. Matt Tahibi, as you said, studies these things very clearly. He's clearly seeking objective truth and verification and evidence, whether you agree with them or not. To your point, by the way, that debate with Malcolm Gladwell and Douglas Murray, Tahibi was in that debate and they walked all over him because he's not a speaker he's not a politician he's not a public pundit he's an investigative journalist that rarest of things right now yeah but um we need civility i think and we also need truly informed debate because what we have today is emotional debate and we'll get to portfolio construction and preparing for these different outcomes and volatilities and that can be again opinionated but based on a heck of a lot of experience in markets but whether you're talking about politics or foreign policy or currencies it helps to talk to people or listen to people who've spent decades doing just that right and um i think um, again those who just spend decades trying to stay elected aren't always the best decision makers and those who just read prompts and get paid to dress well and look well i look at things i'll just say it like the view Whoopi goldberg i'm sorry i'm not trying to be an elitist i'm not trying but whether whatever the skin color, whatever the sexual orientation, whatever the political views, these are just emotional opinions. And fine, everyone has the right to that. But when that becomes the canon for everyone else who's watching to get their thoughts from, that's, or Will Smith getting a standing ovation after he slaps somebody in public. And then two days later, they punish him and he's gone from the academy. That's a simple pop culture analogy of what politicians or even policymakers do. They're all standing up and clapping because they're supposed to. Like, Like like sheep, they're just doing what they're supposed to, and then two days later they react and think. But again, it's just it's just grandstanding, it's just headlining. It's not layered, nuanced thinking. And again, I'm not going to get into social identity politics and pop culture, but I understand. And I joked the other day in an interview why people are more interested in Gwyneth Paltrow's ski accident and trial in Utah than they are in the bond market. I get it. The bond market is boring. The U.S. dollar is boring even Zelensky's war to some people is now just boring but or putin's war whatever you want to call it but i think the bond market is on the probably the last thing on everyone's mind but again this does go down to where your currency is going where your central bank is going where your inflation or deflation is going and where your financial future is going and i don't care where you are on the financial spectrum when you're feeling the pinch of the invisible tax of inflation or your portfolio loses 40% and it doesn't get a V-shaped recovery like in 08 or the Nikkei has not recovered when you're actually suffering financially, that is political, that is social, but more importantly, it's incredibly personal. So the bond market does matter just as much as an opinion on the view matters or a Netflix movie matters. Those are all distractions. Uh, but these things matter. Inflation, deflation matters. Currencies matter. The purchasing power of every major currency, again, whether you're a gold bug or you're a Bitcoin or you're both, it's irrelevant because objectively, every major currency in the world since 1971 has lost 95 to 99% of its purchasing power compared to a real asset like a gram of gold. That's not a gold bug buy my gold in Switzerland and make me rich. That's just an objective fact. We can debate whether that's inflationary or deflationary, whether that's based on this or that force, whether that's going to be in the future or the past. But these are these are basic commonsensical facts. The CPI measure of inflation from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, it's an open fiction. It's, it's never honest, but it's always right because it's the official scale. So there's no point in debating whether the CPI... Uh, is honest or dishonest is clearly dishonest. We could debate, but it's what the Fed says it is, and the market follows that. And that determines whether rates are negative or positive. And negative or positive rates determine whether the gold price, it's one of the key determinants in the gold price. And if if 1,100 tons of gold are being bought by central banks last year, which is the most since the 1960s, that's not just a topic, that actually says something about where currencies are going and what other countries are thinking about the future of the US dollar. If the US dollar is the world reserve currency, that matters to everyone because if that currency is under threat, so is the purchasing power of your portfolio, your checking account, or your savings account. So I wish that these things were made more simpler to understand because they do affect our lives probably more so than the, the, the entertainment we get on the left or the right. And again, You know, give him credit for at least showing up. Tucker Carlson was on TV with Russell Brand. I'll give him credit for that. I I respect that. That's an attempt to have two very different views. They're trying. They're trying, and and so I'm not here to just criticize every journalist. I mean, every pundit on TV or the left or the right. They're trying, but they're clearly not as informed as a as a Brent Johnson. They're just not, or Grant Williams. They're just not. And uh, nor should I be leading the Fed right now. But I think I could do more than Biden or or. Obama or Clinton or Reagan, frankly, anyone who's worked at a bond desk and who studied financial history could do at least as well. But more important, I think what we need is a fireside chat from a leader to say we've got to really change things. We've got to take responsibility for this. And let's not do it through war or debasement only. And Hemingway, again, not a central banker, not a senator, not a mathematician, but von Mises, Hemingway, David Hume, philosophers, financial thinkers, and Novelists all saw with their own eyes that when a when a country goes into debt, what did Hemingway say? They debase the currency, they create inflation, and they go to war. They create temporary prosperity and permanent ruin. I've used that quote so many times because it's exactly where we are right now. It's exactly where we are right now. We have debasement, we have inflation, and we have war. And this war in the Ukraine, whether you're for or against it, whether you're whether you think Putin is Hitler and Zelensky's George Washington 2.0, whatever your views. It is a Western war. It is a proxy war against Putin. It still is, because when, when, when the when the Ukrainian Air Force goes out there, that's not his airplanes. It's NATO's, which is it means it's America's it's mostly American planes. So, but we are at war. We do have inflation and we do have debasement because as Hemingway and Von Mises and David Hume in 7052 warned: when you're ruined by debt, you distract yourself with debasement and war. And that is as his old as history itself. That's not in a political opinion. That's where we are right now. You can be for or against the war. You can argue debasement is objective. It just is. The dollar is relatively strong, but I've always said that's like being the healthiest patient in the ICU. It's still sick compared to, say, real assets or commodities okay. or precious metals. Um, and again, I'm not a gold bud because I just want to sell a gold book. I could I joke I could be selling bonds for a too-big-to-fail bank, but I don't have to and I don't want to. I may be dead wrong, but I chose like Egon, Von Greyers, or you know, Grant Williams to say what I actually believe is true. And I have to, you have to back that truth with years of experience and a few books under your belt before you just start screaming, buy gold, or buy treasuries, or buy Bitcoin. There's a lot of great arguments to be made in favor of Bitcoin too. I'm not here to beat up Bitcoin to promote gold. There are risks in both. I personally yeah. think the risks in Bitcoin are higher only because Bitcoin is an existential threat to the US dollar. It mm-hmm. just is mm-hmm. and there's a lot to be said about that but again so is gold but i think gold in my opinion has a little bit more legs and central banks are buying more of that than cryptos right now for a reason yeah that's a good point
0: a couple things you hit on there are so valuable you know the the importance of long-form content right and you're right brent johnson to go back to that example is never going to be invited on to and well probably not because you can't explain the milkshake theory in four minutes right and that's why right, right? And because you can't do it with just punchlines, it's not going to make the cut for entertainment media. And then I just have to point to a, uh, you had this hilarious analogy. You mentioned CPI and how fictitious this number is, yet it's a benchmark that we use. And I heard you on a recent interview compare it. I thought this was so perfect to a, a fat camp where all they feed you is burgers, fries, and pizza but then they measure your weight, exempt of calories, exempt right. of what's created by burgers, fries, and pizza. So you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's like, it's let's true. just change the measuring yeah. stick. Yeah. yeah I
1: that was no, The trick, all these tricks, you know? Um, so,
0: so let's talk about, uh, I want to wrap up with a bit. Of, I always like to talk about your portfolio, you know, as much sure. as you want to share. Um, let's start with safe Haven assets. So, Where are you parked right now for weathering volatility? The goal is to retain purchasing power
1: and keep the wealth
0: that you've built. You know, where are you looking and where do you have wealth stored right now?
1: Yeah, I mean... I, I come from this perspective. I mean, I, I always joke I was a hedge fund manager in the dot-com bubble. and All that was was being in your late 20s and being dumb and lucky because we had a pre-IPO that made stupid money like uh, none of us earned. But I, in, in my late 20s, I suddenly was responsible for money. And then I had to think about how to preserve it because I had a mentor who said, you know, look, if you've got some money, the, the key to being wealthy is to not lose it now. Don't lose it. Think preservation. Yeah. Which is a different um, problem to solve than making money, right? Right. And yet I've worked with, you know, very, very successful um, family offices where the patriarch was coming into the meetings every Monday and saying, return, return, return. And I'm sitting back as, as a manager director thinking, no, preserve, preserve, preserve. We're talking billions of dollars. Let's preserve it. <laughs> but yeah. it's an amazing that this need to kind of like a pension fund manager, get that 8% a year thinking yeah, yeah, that yeah. way. Um, of course, you need to have uh, a combination of in a portfolio of some risk that you can afford, but you have to think preservation you have to think allocations to less sexy things like short duration treasuries as much as i think the treasury market is is stressed you have to have short duration bonds most portfolios are 60 40 70 30 diversification your standard bond allocation your standard equity allocations which are the the, the bread and butter of the RIA industry, which is consensus think like bankers, because, well, you know, you bite the stick through bad times, markets always recover. And, you know, they'll, they'll you just do that. That's a very easy excuse to be lazy thinking, but it's a great money maker in a bull market for pension or for money managers. It's absolutely disastrous in a bear market. And what they'll say is, but, you know, markets historically always recovered. Jeremy Siegel, you always average about 10, 15% since the 1800s, just just wait out the storms. I remind people that that post two thousand and eight central banks have so distorted markets that V shaped recoveries aren't a guarantee. And I always think of the 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 Nikkei eighty nine. That market lost eighty percent. It hasn't recovered since. That was over thirty years ago. The U S. Uh, has created a moral hazard where every dip is a buy and the central bank will always recover it. And I suppose if you believe that, and it is technically possible that you could never see a major drawdown again that a central bank couldn't prop back up again. And I think that is something you have to consider. Uh, we can see like we did in, in, in March of 2020, and I'll get to, this is part of the portfolio question. March of 2020, the, the S&P was down 36%. I think it would have gone down to 70, 80%. Had we not printed trillions trillions in a matter of months. So in effect, that was a counterfeit solution, but it did save the, the risk markets. Um, but so technically, under modern monetary theory, you could nationalize, so to speak, the S&P, the NASDAQ, and the Dow so that every dip was a buy. But to do that would require trillions in mouse click dollars from the Eccles building. So you're going to have an inflationary poison as part of the medicine for propping up your risk asset bubbles. So it's not a, it's not a win-win, it's a win-lose. It's a it's a zero sum game. There's a winner and a loser. There's no two winners there. Um, uh, You know, von Mises talks about constructive destruction. Real capitalism requires a cleaning out, Um, and so I think we need a cleaning out. But there's always the argument that the Fed just bails out everyone, and you know the markets think that's what's going to happen. And I'm not going to get into euro dollar futures and spreads, and it's complicated. Like you said, Brent Johnson can't go on CNBC and talk about euro dollar futures or repo markets or collateral for derivatives that people, their eyes roll over. But the markets are already pricing in a rate reduction because the pricing of a market crisis solved by a rate reduction and more QE at some point. And I don't know. No one knows when. Q2, Q3, Q4, there's a lot of reason to believe it's probably year end, but I don't know. Uh, We're not going to guarantee I do. But the markets are pricing in a bailout, so to speak, of the markets by the central banks. But again, that's a pyrrhic victory because the only way to bail out a failing market is through mouse click money. So you, in your portfolio, even if you believe the Fed will save you, you've yeah. got to have something to insure against currency risk. The, the purchasing power of the money which for which you measure your portfolio. If you have a million dollar portfolio, but that million only buys with five hundred thousand, is only going to buy you five hundred thousand worth of goods and services. You've got to you've got to think about that. Don't be seduced by the zeros. Think real hard about the purchasing power. Again, here comes the gold bug from Zurich, talking his book, talking sure, gold. Sure, sure. Uh, you know, But again, we have clients, our minimums are very high. They're not in it for speculation. They're in it for insurance, for currency risk, and for banking risk. The gold, for example, physical gold, whether you hold it with us in a vault in Switzerland or put it someplace, wherever you want, in Idaho or Tennessee or Michigan or Ohio or Vancouver, and whether you can buy 5 million worth of gold or 5,000 or 500, You've got to be thinking of physical gold. If you have an account of physical gold in a vault that's segregated and allocated, that, unlike SVB or Morgan Stanley, is not hypothecated, levered, and unavailable in the event of a bank run or a failure of a bank, even a bailed out bank. You know, It's your gold. It can't be FDI insured because it's got to be insured by the fact that it's yours. It can't be printed. So again, it's your common sense thing. So part of every portfolio has to have some allocation to real assets, I believe in precious metals because they're monetary metals. They're different than other types of metals. They're different than pork bellies. They're different than beef. They're different than hay. They're different than wheat. Yes. But I believe in some allocation of monetary metals. Most uh, prop deaths and banks and wealth management offices where I come from, big banks, can't make a good profit. So they don't push that in their portfolios. They don't. Yeah. Yeah. But I know a lot of hedge fund managers who are long, short credits and bond spreads, never had a dime of gold in their portfolios that they took their 2 and 20 fees from for their hedge funds. But in their personal accounts, they were buying gold in Switzerland. And I won't name names, but they're buying physical gold. So there's the money they churn and they take their 2 and 20 from and they make a living off of. And then there's the way they insure their own money outside of that hedge fund. And it's in physical precious metals. But that's one answer. But again, my point is Beyond ensuring the currency's purchasing power, whether it's Canadian, Australian, US dollars, Euros, one, or yen, whatever your allocation is, ensure the money, like you insure your health or your house or your car with some allocation to precious metals. That again could be five, 10, 20 percent. I'm not getting into a, a number here because I'm yeah. not here to give financial advice, even though I'm SEC registered and FINRA registered. Can't do that publicly. I would recommend some allocation to physical precious metals. Um, If you want to take the risk as an alternative currency into crypto, if you can afford that risk, you can stomach that standard deviation, do it because there's strong arguments for it. But that's a very different and personal choice that I'm not an expert in, but I'm not against it. Intellectually, I believe in it, but I think there's a lot of risk there. The other thing I would, again, shy away from standard 70, 30, 60, 40 portfolios that are just diversified. Stocks and bonds are correlated now, as we saw in March of 2020 when a central bank props up an artificial bond market to prop up an equally artificial equity market. Because again, equities follow bonds. Bonds used to hedge against equity risks. They don't anymore. In a crisis, they correlate to zero. We saw that hint of that in March of 2020. It's not our mom and dad's or grandma and grandpa's bond market anymore. It's an inflated Asset bubble artificially sustained by mouse click money. It just is. And if you saw what happened last year in a rising rate environment, what happened to the bond markets from investment grade to junk, all across the board, from sovereign, uh, they got shellacked. And so that bond market isn't a good hedge. You still have to have bonds, shorter duration. Jamie Dimon, the reason JP Morgan is a healthier bank than some others, too big to fail, and I give him credit, it's the smartest of the too big to fail banks. Is they had a much bigger diversified book of short duration rather than long duration uh, U.S. bonds, U.S. Treasuries. So you got to talk to your advisor and put him or her to the task of really explaining what is your bond book. Is it long? Is it short duration? Is it diversified? Uh, and what does diversification mean? Just corporates, junk, and foreign, and a couple Treasuries. Are they are they ten year, four year, two year, four four week bills? Are they two year notes? What are they? You got to think of that duration risk uh, in a rising rate environment. Um, the other people a lot of people fear about selling now because they don't want to face capital gains pressures well if you're afraid to sell or pay, face capital gains you can always instead of going short which is a very difficult thing to do if you're not a professional trader even for professionals it's very hard to short a market that yeah. you never know when the fed's going to come in and squeeze your short uh one way is just to go long volatility just go long the vix again some allocation going long the vix is like a long term You know, uh, put on on a on a a, a dangerous market. I see a recession coming in the short term. When you're talking to your financial advisor, in recessions uh, we've had, you know, so many recessions since in the last 50 years. The majority of them saw at least a 50 percent peak to trough fall. Not all of them. I think we're going to see at least that, which means you're looking at an S&P somewhere near 3,000. You can't just short the S&P and buy an inverse index because you could get squeezed. But you can allocate to short duration treasuries or cash equivalents and wait for that mean reversion. Every market reverts to the mean. What that means, if you think of a rubber band from your finger going up or going below, it tends to revert to the mean. Mean reversion in the S&P as an example of the NASDAQ or the Dow is pretty easy to track. Talk to your advisor. What is the mean reversion to to 1987, to 2008, to 2020? What are the possible real lows I could see in my portfolio? How do we protect against that? Is it going along the VIX? Is it going to cash 30%, 40%, 20% based on what you can afford to lose? Um, Is it going to precious metals? Um, Ronnie Sturffel, another genius, unspoken genius, modest genius, did a fantastic graph on commodity cycles and on. SMP is going down and commodities going up. You know, We talk about buying low and selling high. No one does it. They want confirmation yeah. of the price before they enter. But yeah. it's very clear whether you're a commodity bull. And there's a lot of volatility in commodities. There's a lot of risk. I'm not saying it's just a simple answer. But I tell my daughter, who's 28 at Goldman Sachs, go long commodities because you're young enough and you can afford the risk. If you're 70 or 80, it's a different, maybe a little different, but it's all very relative. But it's clear that when the S&P does suffer an uh-oh moment, which it naturally should, even if the Fed bails it out, the S&P is going to, like every risk asset, like every equity is going to have a mean reversion. And we're going to see a cycle in equities, I mean, excuse me, in commodities. So go long, a broad basket of commodities. Gold is obviously doing well when you see central banks buying you know, 1,100 tons of it. There's a reason for that. But that doesn't mean gold only goes up and to the right. Yeah, but you know, again, try and forget I work in gold in Zurich for a second, and just look at the simple math of gold, and look at what it means in terms of purchasing power of your currency. Don't think of me as a gold bug. I don't need anyone to become a client of my fund to understand gold. You just need to understand, gold loves negative real rates. When 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 inflation. Is higher than the yield in the 10 year treasury. That means you're getting a negative return. Inflation eats away at the return on your treasury. Your US treasury is not giving you a profitable return. That is an environment that's typically very favorable to precious metals, regardless of whether I'm a gold bug, which I think is a real simplistic term for people to understand gold. But so think about that. So the only way that gold could really suffer is if we have positive real rates. In other words, you know, in an environment where yields and, you know, Where inflation is low, you know, very low, and rates are um, yields are high, and inflation is low, well, that would require a balanced budget in Congress. That would require that we've solved our debt problem, that the hundred-plus trillion in entitlements, social security and pensions, et cetera, uh, have been solved. That the debt ceiling is no longer going to be raised, but reduced, and that the nine, that the thirty-five to forty trillion in public debt that we're going to have over the next few years is going to be solved magically through growth and GDP. If you believe that, then gold will suck. The good yeah. thing is, with all due respect, that's never going to happen. I can mm-hmm. say that's never going to happen. Going back to the politics, they're going to keep extending and pretending with debt. So the only thing. That could really hurt gold is smart financial planning in our Congress and the Senate. With all cynicism aside, left or right, that's never happened. It's not going to happen anytime <laughs> in the next 10 years. And so gold just makes sense. Don't go 100% into gold or any commodity or any metal. Don't go 100% into Bitcoin. Don't go 100% into stocks or the NASDAQ but really, be critical with your advisor. But what is the diversification? Are you using inverse ETFs? Are you using the? Are you are you playing the VIX? Are you using cash? Are you using short-term treasuries? Are you thinking only about return? Or are you thinking about risk management? And if your advisor says yes, we're managing risk. We have a large book of bonds here. That's not managing risk. That's consensus think platitudes from real, really lazy thinking financial advisors at an RIA near you. So again, protect the purchasing power, have some allocation to commodities, ideally some to monetary metals. Um, don't be afraid of going cash. Don't be afraid of going along the VIX. Don't be afraid of, of, of looking at other currencies like the yen. Look at, look at where currency markets are going because the US dollar is still the best horse in the glue factory, but it's changing. But in the short term, be prepared for so much volatility. How does your advisor manage vol? How do they manage vol? Um, there are lots of ways there are certain forms of real estate like farmland and reITs that deal with farmland agricultural land which are safer than commercial real estate REITs there's in other words look at these different sectors in 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 a carefully analyzed way to see really which manages fall better because real estate is not the same thing across the board there's all different kinds of real estate commercial yeah. real estate is probably not the safest REIT to be in agricultural real estate definitely a little bit safer so again, There's lots of ways to play it. Don't think traditional bond risk parity portfolios. Don't be afraid to have allocations to commodities. And be be careful not to be afraid of volatility in commodities. It's a a longer-term trend. And you have to ask yourself as an investor, are you a trader or are you an investor? Are you a wealth preserver or are you a speculator? I have no problem with whatever you are, but be honest with yourself. If you're a speculator, do it for different reasons. You have a different risk tolerance. You have a different appetite. You have a different patience level. If you're an investor, you're thinking 10, 20 years out, not 10 weeks out. You're not thinking whether the Fed pivots in Q2, Q3, or Q4. Yeah. You're looking at Bollinger Bands and Keltner Bands, and you're looking at volatility spreads, and hopefully you're actively managing. But most people are not. They're dentists, doctors, lawyers, bricklayers, single parents, whatever, with a RIA, and they're going into to trust their advisor. They just have to be a little more informed about the questions they ask you know i can't put up a pie chart of the matt peitenberg portfolio on your show but i think you can understand that there are clear risks in conventional bond stock credit equity portfolios the 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 mainstay of most people and i think depending on your age too remember when the Nikkei lost 80 percent 89 it never recovered its highs if you were 80 years old or 70 or 60 in 1989 that was a life-changing event that was risky if you were 30 or 25 you could afford to wait that out maybe so it also depends right. on your age and where yes. you are um and you know again it's such a mainstream term what's your risk tolerance moderate high or aggressive it's such a typical RAA phrase but it actually has some truth what can you really honestly afford to lose and yeah. uh and if you and if you have to even get out of the markets well then you're going to say matt well what about inflation It's eating away at my checking account every day you know, yeah. money markets give me a better return than my Citibank checking account. But you know, again, even if inflation eats away at cash, it's better than a thirty percent drawdown and inflation. So again, you have to think about your own situation. There is, I think, gold is an alternative, ultimately, to the type of inflation we're going to have because it's 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 money supply based inflation. Real inflation isn't, to me, just the CPI scale, whatever you think of it, or just the price of, the, of the, the basket of goods on the CPI. Real inflation is the purchasing power of your currency. At the end of the day, that's the real definition. And that, objectively, is getting weaker by the second in every major currency in the world. And so you just have to think about that and, and look at views that are totally the opposite of mine. Look at anti-gold views. Go for it. You know, look at anti-crypto views. Look at anti-risk parity views or pro-risk parity views. Um, but it's no longer us gold bugs. You know, Ray Dalio, you know, Jeremy Grantham at GMO, brilliant hedge fund managers. Pretty much the same views as we have. Again, not because we're getting together and swapping thoughts and pushing out an agenda, but we're looking at the same data. Um, and I'm not going to name names, but there are plenty of plenty. Pretty powerful hedge fund managers that are buying physical precious, physical monetary metals because they're worried about currency risk. So again, um, these are all things that you can check yourself, but uh, I hopefully I've answered that question to some extent because there's a lot more to it. But I am worried uh, about mean reversion in stocks and bonds. I'm worried about currency risk. I'm worried about long duration sovereign bonds. Uh, and I think even going along the VIX is one way to play volatility without having to sell and suffer capital gains treatments. if you're worried about that. Uh, I think you should also question the moral hazard that we've all learned, because we can blame central bankers for propping markets artificially too long. But we've also been addicted to that QE, that mouse click money. We all have. So it's not just the fault of the central bankers. We still believe, as the markets do, that the Fed will always bail us out. Uh, yes. you may, you may want to question that without thinking you're just doom and gloom. And if, if, if you think that raise the possibility that you may be 20% wrong. And if you are, what are you going to do? you want to be caught in a Nikkei moment where it just goes down and down and down, and it doesn't come back and you're in your sixties. Yeah. That's a dangerous presumption. You've got to, you've got to hedge your own convictions. Like you said, lean into counter opinions and listen to them, you know? Yeah. Uh, Long-winded that, answer, Jay, but you know.
0: Well, it's a good one though, and it you know what you said right at the buzzer there, puts an emphasis on uh, just reducing counterparty risk when you can, right? And yeah. at least having a chunk of your portfolio exempt of counterparty risk. And um, yeah. Yeah. you know, long-term viewers know I'm I'm similar in my approach to precious metals. I, I like owning physical, and yeah. I like having possession of it, or you know, have it stored privately. Um,
1: and uh, yeah, I was I was sitting with Egon two days ago in Zurich. We were just watching, and again, I think cynics will say, "Well, he's a, here's a guy who works in Zurich with a private gold vault, and he's got physical gold. Of course, he's going to have a bias, and of course, I have a bias." Sure. But we were thinking, and I do have a bias, but we were thinking: imagine if you and I, Egon, had our money at Silicon Valley Bank, two hundred fifty thousand insured, the rest gone, unless somebody bails us out. We have yeah. to. Typically, it would take two years in receivership to get a dividend on the non-insured money to get pieces of the sold assets of that bank, but God knows the Fed and the FDIC came in and bailed it out again. They can't do that anymore. They won't do that forever, but they did then. But let's just assume in a normal scenario, your bank fails because it's got long duration risk and poor loans like so many banks do, and believe yeah. me, they do. This is not the end of banking yes. risk in America. We did even get into that. It is not the end, and everyone knows that he knows banking, but- that's not making the headlines because be calm and carry on is what's necessary. When the math is bad, keep the the media in calm. But if imagine if, if, if let's just say for some math, like it's a million dollars. You have a million dollars at SVB or you have a million dollars in gold at a hole in the ground somewhere in the world that you pay a fee for, and everyone laughs and makes fun of you for. But that gold is yours with a serial number allocated, segregated just for you. The the manager of that vault isn't lending it out into the world in fractional reserve gold and putting it at risk so they can get bigger fees and bigger returns themselves. It's just sitting there. But it's always there. There's no line up outside the vault when the when the bank fails because it's always there. It's just there. But people's memories are short. When bank runs, we had a forty billion dollar bank run at SVB in twenty four hours, that's insane. That's yes, insane. It is. Yes, it is. <laughs> that's just the beginning. But I'm saying, If you just had even gold under your mattress, which we don't recommend, but even if you had that, that's better than 250,000 or 400,000 at a bank near you. And I hate to say that, that's not trying to be conspiracy theory; it's common sense. But we're not a bank; we don't loan, we don't margin. If you hold gold in a vault or you hold it in a in a shoebox somewhere underground in the back of a farm, it's still safer than a lot of these regional banks, and frankly, even a lot of these too big to fail banks. But you know they are too big to fail in a lot of ways, as we saw with Credit Suisse, a dead zombie bank. UBS and the S- Swiss National Bank pulled a Bear Stearns and a Fed. They just bailed them out because literally they are too big to fail until they they fail, and yeah. no one knows when. And that's very sensational, but banking risk and currency risk and macro risk and historical risk are all out there. And again, we could spend hours on each, and and yeah. yet. We can't hear, but everyone can take hours on their own to start thinking about these things because it does affect your sanity, your family, your life more so than the pundit de du jour on the mainstream media will tell you. Just sadly,
0: and and it puts a, a spotlight on the fact that boring things are important. And yeah, you know, <laughs> portfolios should also be kind of boring. You know, they shouldn't yeah. all be all exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I'm a speculator and I'm also focused on wealth preservation. And, you know, in my newsletter, I I share that breakdown. It's very barbell, right? I got nothing in the broad market. I'm like, I have a very good network in the commodity sector. And so I participate in a lot of very early stage speculative deals there. Uh, That's where I have a competitive advantage. But the bulk and any winnings, should I be so lucky, are transferred over to the safe haven storage, the boring Part of the right. portfolio which is the bulk you yep. know and that's okay because investing shouldn't
1: always be a thrill <laughs> right right and, and again i totally agree and, and i take zero credit for getting a lottery ticket on an ipo in 1999 but right. nevertheless i didn't know a thing about bond spreads or risk at all at 28 when i was 28 I got lucky, but it's amazing what happens when you're actually responsible. I have a twenty six year old son who's just trying to think, like everyone that age, how do I make it? How do I how do I get my my huge, you know, moment? And I totally respect that. And you we yeah. all have to have a part of us that speculates and take risks. We need to take risks, but it's a question to what degree and what can you afford. And and then if you're lucky, as you said, because some of it is luck, let's be honest. A lot of people I know who made a lot of money in Bitcoin, that was that was wow, that happened, but God yeah. bless them. You know, yeah. God bless my IPO, my pre-IPO, but I didn't deserve it. I didn't. But they admit it's luck. But when you're lucky, don't think that happens every day. And then you got to think about pres- preservation. And whether you're a millionaire, or whether you have a very modest amount of money, we all have to preserve our wealth. We all do. And at the end of the day, as he got I say this isn't polyannish, I don't care if you have 10 million or 10 grand. What we got to keep this philosophical thing in mind at the end of the day. That Porsche smell goes away. That big house is still just the house. What really matters, and this everyone thinks is so polyester, what really matters when you're at your last breath, and I, I talked about this with Egon, it's your family, your friends, your honesty, accountability for the massive amount of mistakes we all make. And I've made many financially, personally, you know, in every level. But it's really refreshing when you find that real wealth. It has nothing to do with gold, silver, crypto markets, but it is very stressful. To be financially pinned. And, and and that is real. And we don't deny that. But if you can create some buffer of basic, boring, boring preservation, the real wealth you're going to get is invisible. It just is. And that's kind of a philosophical, Pollyannish way to end this. But I think it's true. We can sit there and debate all these things. And I think people feel, I can't afford to put money in gold in Switzerland. It's okay. You're still, you can still be a very rich human being, you can be rich in other things. And I think people feel like they're missing out. I can't afford to buy crypto now, or I can't afford to buy gold. I respect that. I think we sometimes forget there are people watching this who don't have money to burn or to risk. They really are worried about rent. And yeah. I mean that, like my mom was when I grew up. I respect that. And so I think we also lose track that not everyone can just put you know, these allocations in play, but they still worry about inflation. They still worry about whatever modest or extreme amount of wealth they have. How do they preserve it? You know. Yes. And 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 uh you know don't lose I don't want to lose sight of that. But a lot of people are struggling in bigger questions than just debates about inflation and deflation or the stronger weak dollar. A lot of people are really just worried about getting through the month. I'm very aware of that. Very well, aware the, of it. the the other side
0: of that is, you know, thinking through like stability and long-term and time horizon is that you know, I think through how I built I have a a, a decent sized bitcoin position and I wasn't early to Bitcoin at all. I started buying Bitcoin in 2020. And um, so earlier than some, but not earlier than the Bitcoin billionaires by any stretch. But anyways, the point is, I didn't understand the asset well enough to know what I was buying, which was weird for me. Usually I like to be, I like to think I have a competitive advantage, but I didn't know at this point, like, is this just a speculation? Is this a potential future alternative currency of some kind? Um, Is it a safe haven? Like, I don't know if it's one or two or none of those things. And so I parted with the point is an immaterial amount of money once a week that was just right. just basic right. dollar cost averaging in, and over the course of eighteen months, right, got to the the, the Bitcoin number that I wanted, right? Here's what I here's yep. what I want because yep. I want a horse in the race, you know, yep. and yep. but it was it was eighteen months of a negligible amount of dollars on a weekly basis right. that became a sizable uh, chunk of wealth. But it was because I wasn't in a rush, and it's right. like, you know, you're because you're absolutely right. Like, you know, the, the majority of people cannot afford to part with a chunk of their income on a regular basis, right. and and throw it in something outside of food and rent. So, right. like, what's the path there? Well, it's it's patience and 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 understanding, as best you can, that it's a lifelong pursuit, right? Yeah. Like. You're not an investor today. It's like you don't hit the gym tomorrow and get jacked. Like, (laughs) you need, you know, good habits over decades. That's how you do it, right? Whatever you can do sustainably. So determining what can I do today and tomorrow and next year? Like, what's the sustainable percent of my time or wealth that I can actually throw at something? And and then over time, let that compound, which is a patient, long-term, boring game, but the one that moves the needle over time,
1: right? Right. I fully agree. And there's a part of us that needs to speculate and dream and take risk that they can afford and dollar cost into. There's also a part of us that has to think just preserve, preserve, preserve. So going back to that family office where like patriarch, return, return, return. That's okay. Guy made a lot of money because he had that right mindset. But you also have to think preserve, 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 because the biggest joke is how do you inherit or how do you make a small fortune? You inherit a large fortune. A lot of people aren't responsible for money because it's too easy. And for those who really have to make it on their own, you gotta have a party that has some risk. You gotta, like you said, you gotta go to the gym, so to speak. You gotta do the work. You gotta do the push-ups. Yeah. But then you gotta preserve that chest and those biceps by staying with it, and you gotta do things smart. And so it's the same with our wealth, whatever that amount is, modest to extreme. We have to preserve it because it is a miserable feeling to to worry about rent, or a car payment, or tuition. I've been there. And I've also been the other side where that wasn't a worry, but ultimately, um, you know, that's why I think it's important to to try and keep in mind who's watching because it's not all just people from hedge fund background or in Switzerland. It's people in Michigan, Ohio, Tennessee, Texas, you know, Saskatchewan outside of Hamilton, Ontario. I mean, it's it's the real world, and uh, that's the world I come from. And so I say, you know, to your point. You can preserve whatever modest wealth you have and you can grow it. And if you're going to grow it with speculating in crypto or you're going to speculate in silver, be informed so you have realistic expectations and you can afford the loss and you can enjoy the gains. But there's, there's both. There's both ahead. There just is. And there's yeah. risk in both. There really is. Um, I, again, bias. I think there's less risk from my perspective. I'm more about risk than return at this point in my life. I'm more about, I can see the massive upside in crypto and massive risk. But for me, as a preservation 50-something old guy who's been through the roller coaster, I'm, I'm more interested in something I feel more stable. And for me, that's gold. But that does not mean I have to win a debate with crypto visionaries because I do believe alternative currencies like crypto are a hell of a lot smarter than the US dollar. I do. If anything, my fear is the cryptos is they're too smart for the U.S. dollar and that they are an existential threat to the U.S. dollar and that there is a lot of effort, especially with central bank digital currency, to go after them. The question is, how much will the bottom up resistance from the top down fraud that's been permitted on uh, our system for years get the last say? And for that, I give 100 percent faith and hope that crypto gets the last laugh. I do. Right. To me, it's not a threat to gold if crypto is successful. Um, Agreed.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Not at all. Look, Matt, I'm so glad we could make this happen. Man, you're, you're such an articulate thinker. And um, there's like three more hours of stuff I
1: can pick your brain on. Without I talk question. and talk and talk. I hope, maybe we should split this into three parts for your audience, but yeah, I, I love talking about this stuff because it, it, it does affect our lives. It just does, yeah.
0: I'd love to do it again.
1: Yeah, part two for sure. Okay, well, I look
0: forward to it. If you enjoy my content, do me a favor, follow or subscribe to this podcast.